Well, welcome again to Lakeshore. We're so glad that you're with us today. Those of you that are connecting with us online, we're glad you connected that way. Smyrna Campus, we're so glad you're there. We we're, we're just love you guys. We appreciate what you're doing there at the Smyrna Campus. We are in a series that we started last week called God Revealed. And last week we talked about God's holiness. Uh, and here's what I want you to know when it, when it comes to talking about the different attributes of God that we're going to be looking at. And that is that God does not change. We talked about that in the message last week. God does not change. His holiness is the same always. And today we're talking about God's power. And I think many times as followers of Christ, we think of God's power, past tense, and all the stuff that he used to do. And we forget that God's power is the same power today. He does not change. He has the same power, and we have the same resource of his power today that all of God's people have always had. There was a little boy that had left a half-eaten apple on the table for a minute. He got distracted. He did a couple other things, and he went back to the apple, and it was turning brown already. And he, he looked at his dad, and his dad was right there. He said, Dad, why did the apple turn brown? And the dad said, well, when you bit into the apple, you penetrated the covering of the skin, exposed the meat of the apple to the oxygen in the air, which caused oxidation. The oxidation caused a change to the molecular structure, causing the change of color. There was a long silence. The little boy looked up at his dad and said, Dad, are you talking to me? <laughs> Right? That, that was a little over his head, wasn't it? Well, here's the thing about this series on God. It's over our heads. In fact, it always has been this concept of God over our heads. Uh, if you ever think you're going to wrap your head around God and fully understand and know everything about God, then, then you are mistaken. That's part of what makes him God, is he is so far above us that we can't comprehend everything about God. We can't. But that's a good thing. The only way we can wrap our heads around any God is if we made a God ourselves that we could understand. And that's what we've tried to do with the God of the Bible. We've tried to remake him into something we can, we can control and understand and even manipulate to be what we want him to be. But you can't do that with the God of the Bible the God of Scripture. We don't get to control him. He's God, the God. And he is so far above us that we can never fully understand it. But that doesn't mean, because we can't fully understand everything about him, that we can't learn and grow and understand a lot of things about him because he has revealed himself to us in Scripture, uh, through his Son, uh, through creation, so many ways God has revealed himself to us in, in ways that we can begin to see and grasp and understand certain things about God, like his holiness we talked about last week, and today his power. In James 1.17, it says this, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So since we know every good and perfect thing we have in our lives and on this earth throughout all of history has come from God, then it would, it would make sense that we would want to get to know this God, right? We would want to get to know him better, get to know everything we can know about him. 
And that's why we're going through this series. This week we're looking at God's power. We're going to be looking at a passage in Acts chapter 17 where, where there is this encounter where Paul has been traveling around uh, sharing the teachings of God and he's attracted a lot of attention. And in the city of Athens, he had already been there for a little while and they had heard the, the, the city of Athens was unique. It was the center of philosophy and teaching in, in their part of the world. And, and they had this place called the Areopagus where many of these philosophers would go and get up on a little podium there. The people, they all had their own little following. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know how entertainers today have a following and sometimes bands have their own followings that go around wherever they play. They try to go see that band. Well, these philosophers had their own followings. All right. They had people who who adhered to their teachings and followed them. And and so every time they they would they would find out this one's going to be here. Or that was going to be there. The people that wanted to hear them, they would come out to hear them. And so the Areopagus was this place where that teaching was taking place regularly. And some of these leading philosophers and people that ran the, the thing at the Areopagus had heard some rumors about Paul and what Paul was teaching, especially they'd heard some things about Paul's speaking of a resurrection and that intrigued them right I mean resurrection is amazing isn't it it's something that would should intrigue all of us the the idea of raising from the dead it's amazing and so they had heard some of that about Paul's teaching and they invited him to come to the Areopagus that day and tell more about what he believed what what his philosophy was they just saw him as another teacher philosopher that could share that day what he was saying about those things and we pick up here in verse 22 where it says, Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. You know what Paul does? What, what a lot of good speakers do. He bragged on them right up front. He, he wanted to get on their good side to get them to listen. Why do you think I tell a joke a lot of times to start, Right? Because you like jokes, you like humor, especially if it's a good joke. You know, sometimes I tell the dad jokes aren't so good, but sometimes I tell a good one. And it kind of gets your attention and gets you to relax and maybe to listen. And, and so Paul starts out with something that he knew they would like to hear. He says, I see that you're very religious people in every way. Verse 23, for as I walk around, I looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. See, Paul had been in town for a while, and he had been going around observing the culture and the people in the town. Uh, it helps when you're speaking to a crowd to know something about the crowd, to know something about what they're into, what, what their view of life is a lot of times. It helps you be able to take them from where they are to where you know God wants them to be and their understanding of things. So he started with a, something that, that he knew about them, and he, it was easy to see that they, religion was very much a part of their lives because they had these statues all over town to these different gods. Now, in their culture, uh, they were very much like our culture is getting more and more like it today. It was, it was diverse religiously uh, in every way. There, there were people there that believed anything and everything. There were, there was, and, and so to cover all of that, Right? Because you got to be tolerant of all the different beliefs, right? So to cover all of that, the, the government and, and other people there, private citizens, had put up these statues 
to cover every single God that, that all these different people worshipped in any way whatsoever. And so, so uh, when I walked around town, I saw. Now, today, we, we don't use the term religious so much. We use another term. Everybody says, uh, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Right? And, and that was really their philosophy. Doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter uh, if it's based in any kind of evidential facts or, or support. If you believe it, your belief is just as good as his belief and her belief is just as good. As, you know, every, every, it's all good. It's all good. You're, you're a spiritual person, so that makes you okay, as long as you're a spiritual person. That was their philosophy in Athens. And every different philosophy was heard and debated and, and respected except one. And that's what Paul was teaching. Does that sound a little bit like the way our culture is going today? We're going to be tolerant of everything except what? Christianity. Except the teachings of Jesus Christ. We, we're not going to tolerate that. That's mean-spirited. That's intolerant. That's hatred. But we'll tolerate anything and everything else out there. And so in that culture, it was very much like the setting in our culture today. We're getting more and more that way. And so Paul knew what he was facing. Just like we as Christians today need to understand that's the culture we're in. That's what we're facing. So how do you respond to that? Right? Well, here's what Paul went on to do that day. I see you're very religious. I walked around, saw all these altars, and even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. I love that. It's just like they were saying, just in case we missed one. Right? We don't want anybody to be offended, even the gods. So we'll put up an altar even to an unknown God that we might have missed somewhere along the way because heaven forbid we should pick one over the other. Right? We're going to cover them all. Cover all of our bases. And so they've got this statue to an unknown God. And Paul is not ridiculing this. Understand me. He's not making fun of them. He's making a point of reference that they could all identify with. I know that you have this in your town. And so from that point, now I can start teaching you what I believe God wants you to know. So here's what he went on to say. Okay. He says, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. Now, when we see the word ignorant in our translations, it makes us think of something that's derogatory. Paul was not using a term here in the original language that was derogatory. He says, what you don't know about, and, and it's obvious you don't because you said he's unknown, what you don't know about, I'm going to now tell you about. Okay? He's not being derogatory. He's not being mean-spirited. He's not trying to ridicule them in any way. We Christians can learn a lesson from that, can't we? Okay. Too many times we take the wrong approach in the culture that we're trying to reach. So here's what he says. This is what I'm going to proclaim to you. What, you, what you've admitted already with your statue out there that you don't know, this is what I'm going to talk to you about today. This is what I'm going to reveal to you, proclaim to you, teach you about today with the opportunity that I have to speak. So he says, verse 24, he goes on to talk about this unknown thing to them. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. That was a good place to start because what was all around him as he spoke? Temples built by human hands for all these different gods. Right? So he's using every port of reference he has around him. He's connecting them with it with what he's teaching here. Okay? He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. 
You know what their belief was with all these gods? They had to appease all the gods. They had to, to do these things and I'll, keep doing these things and certain things would please the gods and he would bless certain things would displease the gods and they would be punished for it. And so he's saying, you can't even serve this God with human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. See, he even quotes one of their own secular poets to teach them what God wanted them to know. I love how Paul worked that in, that, that he would take something so familiar to them. This was uh, the writings of a poet of their time that, that was not a Christian, not, a, not even necessarily a godly person, but, but who had written something that Paul could use as an illustration that they would identify with. Okay? He says, uh, in him we live and move and have our being. Some of your own poets have said we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Now, what's all around him while he's speaking? All these statues made of gold and silver and stone, right, to all these other gods. And they had them for the God of the air, the God of fire, the God of water. They had them for everything, right? He's saying, this God, you can't make out of gold or silver or stone. That's not the nature of this God. It says in verse 30, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to do what? Repent. <laughs> Paul got their attention. He connected with things in their culture. He, 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 he bragged on them. He said, all right, I understand that you're very religious, so here's something. I'll, I know It's like he's saying, I know you want to learn about religion. It's part of your life, so let me teach you the truth about this one God. In the past, he overlooked all of this, but now what's God calling for you to do? Repent. In the past, he overlooked. Overlooked doesn't mean he thought it was okay. That's not what it means. He means he allowed it. But now, he's calling on you to repent. It says in verse 31, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by doing what? Raising him from the dead. You see, this is the one thing that the apostles focused on their whole time when they preached, that, the, that Paul uh, focused on in this thing. It's because it separates this God from all the other human man-made gods, and that is this God raises the dead. Their gods didn't do that. In fact, there was a big debate going on among those philosophers at that time that there was any such thing as life after death. That was one of their main things they debated all the time. And Paul gets right to the point. <laughs> this God that you say you don't know, you need to get to know him because he has appointed a time where he's going to both judge and he has the ability to raise the dead. And he's shown it. He's proven it because he's already done it. He raised Jesus from the dead. This separates the God of the Bible from every other religion that there ever has been and still is today. 
This is the one key characteristic of Christianity that separates it from every other religion. That's why it's impossible for us, if we really believe the Bible, if we really believe Jesus is who the Bible says he is, that we can never, ever say it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Because if he's the one that can give us life after death, no other religion has that. No other religion even teaches that. No other religion can, can say that anything has been done to show that it's even possible through that religion to have that. So that separates Christianity out and puts it above every other religion in the world. It's not arrogant for us to say that. That is what God reveals. It's not arrogant or intolerant for us to say it's the only way when you understand that he's the only one who has proven he can do that. You see, that separates him from all the others. Every religious leader that has ever existed in the world has died and stayed in the grave except one, and it's Jesus. That makes him superior to every other religious teacher that has ever existed by far. He can do something for us that we all need because all of us are going to do what? Die, right? You do, I know you didn't come here to be cheered up this way, but listen. Every one of us is going to die. And we don't know when, but we know we are. The death rate in America is the same as in the rest of the world, right? What's the death rate? 100%, right? It's 100%. So we all know if we're going to have victory over that, if we're going to have an answer for that, we need to find someone who has an answer for that. And there's no religion in the world that has an answer for that except Christianity. It's the only one who has an answer for the one thing we all face, death. So our culture is very much like theirs. They were very proud of their intellect, their diversity of religious beliefs, their tolerance, their enlightenment. They would consider themselves spiritual, but they didn't know the one thing they needed to know the most. Who can give them an answer for the one thing they will all face of death? And so Paul says, I want you to know him. Now, when he even brought up the subject of resurrection, immediately it sparked a response of debate among the religious philosophers of that day. He said, oh, I can't believe he brought, he's talking about resurrection. That, that can't be real. Right? It immediately stirred up controversy. Just like any time you say Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and nobody comes to the Father but by him. And our culture today, what are you going to stir up if you say that? Controversy, debate. It's going to stir it up. But that doesn't have to be a bad thing. If you understand, that could really be an opportunity to teach. If people would just be civil enough to keep the discussion going, it gives us an opportunity to teach. So, so let's look at some things God uh, is revealed about God and what Paul has already said here, okay? Four things revealed about God's power in this passage. The first thing is, he says, God has the power to create the power to create. Look at verse 24 again. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. He himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. How many times have you been told that it's good to be creative? I've been told that a lot in my life. 
Oh, you should, it's good to have creativity. You should be creative. You know what the, what the truth is? You don't create anything. Neither do I. Now, I know what they mean by creative. I understand the concept of being creative and, and figuring some things out and doing some special things. But here's the thing. We only work with what's already there. We only work with what's already there. It's like the, the old joke about the scientists that were having this debate with God and they went to God and said, we've got everything figured out now. We don't need you anymore. We can do anything we need to do without you, God. He said, really? You can do anything I can do without me. He said, yeah. He said, okay. He picked up some dirt and he formed the dirt and he breathed into it and made a human being. He said, you do that. He reached over to get some of God's dirt. He said, no, get your own dirt. See, we only have the ability to work with what God already put there. And the amazing thing is, man doesn't actually create anything, but God, we work with everything that God has already created. Go back to Genesis 1. Remember verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. His very words brought it into existence. That's the power of the God of the Bible. I know there's great debate about this uh, in our culture today. Uh, Jeremiah 32, 17, Jeremiah the prophet said, All sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing's too hard for you. I mean, if he can do that, what, what limit does he have, right? If he can just say the words and make it happen, what, what limit is there to his power? And he says in Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His internal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. He said, just look at what's been created, and you are without excuse if you don't believe in a, a creator God. Now, there was a time where a guy named Charles Darwin was working with the technology he had at the time, the scientific advancements he had at the time, he went to the Galapagos Islands and he saw all these variety of creatures that were there. And he came to a conclusion that we now know as the theory of evolution. He was working with what he had, with the knowledge he had at the time. And he came up with that theory. Now, the thing about the theory of evolution was Darwin wasn't even trying to disprove God. He was just trying to explain what he observed. Okay? But many today who are really into the theory of evolution say we don't need God because everything just happens. There's no, no really reason for us to even have God or believe in God or that God exists. So they ruled out God in connection with the theory of evolution. But you know what's happened since then? Science has advanced. And by the way, I love science. I'm not opposed to science in any way. I think it's amazing. But here's what we have now. We now have the ability to see things that Darwin never imagined that existed. Some of you are old enough like me to remember in the science book, you had a picture of a cell. You know how many parts it had? Three that made up the cell. Because that's all Darwin could see with the technology they had at that time. You know what we can see now? Within one single cell, it is a remarkable work of engineering and technology. All the functioning parts in that cell, it's amazing. I'm not talking about 
10 parts of 15. I'm talking about hundreds, maybe thousands of working mechanisms within a single cell that we can see now that we couldn't see when Darwin came up with his theory. We've now discovered what we call DNA, right? Everybody has unique DNA. That's why crimes can be solved now from DNA identification. And now you can go back and trace your history, right, through, through 23andMe and different organizations like that, different companies like that, where they can go back and your DNA and, and trace back to where you came from with some accuracy. Sometimes some of those aren't exact, but, but with some accuracy. And here's the thing. Darwin didn't know DNA existed when he came up with this theory had no clue that there was such a thing as DNA. Here's the thing about DNA. When you were conceived in your mother's womb, your hair color was determined, your eye color was determined, your height, oh my goodness. <laughs> Every detail about you was already in the DNA that was formed when you were conceived. Everything about your uniqueness was already put there. It was your book of life. And here's the thing. Every living thing on the earth has DNA. The plants, all the animals, and every human being has intricate, specific DNA that Darwin knew nothing about. And here's what's happening in the world of science today. You need to know this. Hundreds of scientists in the past 10 years They've not all become Christians, but hundreds, many hundreds of them have now said the theory of evolution will never stand up when you look at the possibility of this happening by random chance. There is a movement within the scientific world now that says with what we know now that Darwin didn't know, evolution does not make any logical sense at all that this could be random chance. That doesn't mean they're believing in God. It doesn't mean they're becoming Christians. It means they are saying we need to examine other possibilities because there's too much evidence for some intelligent design behind this for it to be just random chance. And they say no matter what age of the earth you put on the earth, there's not enough time for this to have possibly occurred the way, evolution, the way evolutionists say it occurred. Now, here's the problem. Scientists get funding from companies and institutions and educational institutions to support what they want them to do. So it's at great risk that they have to break away from the crowd and say, I believe this can't work the way you're saying it works. But some of them are having the courage to do that today. And I'm thankful for it. You see, God was saying, if you just look at the wonders of creation, you're without excuse for not believing that there is a God. And the more we can find out the intricate details of the created world, the more it points to the intelligent designer of an intelligence much greater than ours, by the way, to be able to put all this into place the way it is. It points to God, the God of the Bible, who says he spoke those things into existence. So he has the power to create, Paul says, and he has the power to control what he creates. I love that. Look at verse 26. For one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. He marked out their appointed times in history, the boundaries of their lands. And God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. 
In Colossians 1, Paul wrote this in verse 16, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And here's the kicker. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, I, I'm all for being good stewards of the earth and everything in the earth. I'm all for taking good care of the environment. I think we have a responsibility to do that. But here's what I want you to understand. Ultimately, who's in control? God is. Now, he's given us the job of being stewards of all this stuff. But ultimately, who's in control? God is. I, I, I like recycling. I like doing stuff that uh, could, could be beneficial for uh, the world that we live in. I, I'm not opposed to, any, to that stuff. What I'm saying is, as we start thinking we're in control, and we're not in control. We never have been. That's the hardest thing for us human beings. It's the hardest thing for a mom with her kids, her dad, for a husband who wants to control his wife or a wife who wants to control her husband. We want to control things. I'd like to control you as part of the church. I can't control you. The sooner I learn that in ministry, the less hair I lost. <laughs> I wish I'd learned it sooner. <laughs> we can't control stuff. We're really not in control of anything except how we respond to the things that we're out of, out of, are out of our control. And some people think of the control of God as a negative thing. But here's what I want you to understand. Paul is not saying that to make us think he's some kind of dictator ruler who just wants to make us puppets. That's not what Paul is saying here. What he's saying is something to reassure us that when things seem to be out of control, not to lose hope, not to fear, not to worry so much about stuff because none of the stuff you're scared about today is out of the control of God. None of it. None of the stuff that's robbing you of your joy right now caught God by surprise as if he didn't know what was going to happen, when it was going to happen, how it was going to happen. Romans 8, 28, Paul reminds us of why God's control is a blessing. Here's what he says. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And though he pre those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So he says, all right, I want you to understand why this is a big deal. What then shall we say in response to these things? Here's what we need to say. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, we face, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. He says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither present, nor future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm thankful God's in control, aren't you? Look at that list again. Is there anything you're worried about right now that doesn't come in that list? No. Can any of it separate you from God's love and care for you? No. I'm thankful for the control of God, that there is a God who's got this. That whatever it is I'm struggling with, and everybody has it, everybody has struggles, everybody has stuff that we're scared about sometimes or worried about, I can take it to the God who has control of these things. I don't have to take care of it on my own. I don't have to bear the weight of all this stuff on my shoulders. I have a God I can go to with all of this who has absolute control even when I have no control at all. I'm thankful for God's control. Uh, I could give you so many examples of this of where I can look back. Now, hindsight is always better, right, than, than, than the ability to see it at the time. But I can look back at so many events in my life where I'm so thankful God was in control. Uh, years ago, when our kids were small, I was taking them to school one day, and it had been a really cold morning. We had had some ice and stuff like that. But the streets seemed to be pretty clear, and I'm taking them to school, and I hit a patch of black ice on the way to school. And I did a complete 360 spin in the car and came to a stop in the same lane having not hit anybody or anything with the kids in the car. Now, what happened there? Was it just luck? I don't think so. Superior driving skills. (laughs) You know better than that. I really think somebody was looking out for us. Now, I'm not saying that means every time he's going to spare everybody in every situation from death or being hurt. That's not what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is, is in his control, he knew that was going to happen. He knew what his plan was. He knew what he needed to have happen. I wasn't in control at all of a car on ice, but he, he had the situation in hand. But even if I had wrecked and even if I had been killed or one of my children had been killed, you know what I know? God could still work all things together for the good of those who love him. Her call according to his purpose. Even the hard things. Even the things that crush us at the time. God can still, because he's in control, work them together for good. For our good when we love him the way we need to. He also has the power to judge. And a lot of people don't like to hear this about God, but it is revealed about God clearly in Scripture. Look at verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. You don't hear very many preachers today talking about the judgment of God. But it is consistently taught all through Scripture. From the flood, right? You know the story of Noah and the flood? You know what that was? God's judgment on a sinful world. That's what that was. That's the truth. God is a righteous God. There's no sin in him at all. Sin is never okay with God. It's never acceptable to God. And because he's a just God, there is a price, uh, a wage to be paid for sin. The wages of sin is what? It's death. You see, he's a, a God who judges sin. And we need to know that about God. 
Sodom and Gomorrah were condemned, were destroyed because of sin. God brought judgment on those cities because of the prevalence of their sin in those cities. It's, God doesn't change, right? That's still sin in the eyes of God. And so he, he exercised judgment against sin. Now, they offered the chance to repent in all of those cases, right? Noah was a preacher of repentance. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah had the chance to do the right thing, and they refused to do it, okay? But there was judgment when you refused to repent. And that's still the God today that's the God of Scripture. Sin puts you in the position of being judged because of your sin. But God offers the chance to repent so that you don't have to receive the judgment. But if you refuse to repent, what happens? There's judgment. God does have the power to judge. And he does do it. In 1 Peter 2, verse 23, we are reminded of God being such a righteous judge that he demands payment for sin. Here's what he says. This is Jesus on the cross. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who does what? Judges justly. See, because God demands payment for sin, what did his son have to do on the cross? He had to die on the cross for us. The price had to be paid for sin. Here's what you need to know. People are always saying, well, my God will never send anybody to hell. Here's what you need to understand. Anyone that ends up in hell, listen to me. God did not reject them. They rejected God. They rejected God's offer of grace and mercy and forgiveness. They refused to repent when God called them to repentance. That's what brought them to where they are today. God has paid the ultimate price so that they would never have to end up there. That's why in 2 Peter 3, verse 3, he says this, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They'll say, where is the coming he promised? Ever, ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being. The earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some of you understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you. And listen to God's will here. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to what? Repentance. See, God doesn't want anybody to be lost, to end up separated from him forever. That's why he calls you to repentance and he calls me to repentance because he doesn't want any of us to perish. And he made sure he gave us the chance not to have to face that judgment because of his son. Which leads me to the last thing, and that is he has the power to save. He will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. He sent Jesus here to bleed and die on the cross and he raised him from the dead to show us that he has the power to save us and deliver us from our sin. 
He has demonstrated his love, his care, his power, his provision in every way that he possibly can so that we would repent and come to Jesus and accept his offer of grace and forgiveness. Someone asked the brilliant theologian Karl Barth, what's the deepest religious thought you ever had? Here's what he said. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Does it get any deeper than that, friends? It's the greatest love that has ever existed. And that's the love God offers you. The God of power, the God of creation, the God, the God who controls, the God who judges is also the God who loves you so much he will save you through his son, Jesus, if you would come to him. Resurrection power is available to you and to me. Philippians 3, verses 10 and 11, Paul said this about his own life. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. The only way you can have victory over sin and death is through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. But the good news is that power is here for you right now, today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your, your love and your plan and your purpose. And Father, today we are reminded of your power. What awesome power you have. That even though we sin and we rebel against you, you have the power to redeem and restore and forgive and give us new life, resurrected life, eternal life through your son Jesus. Father, I pray if anyone today needs to come to that place of repentance that that your spirit would work and, and their hearts would be pricked and, and they, would, they would respond to that call to repent, to turn from sin, to turn to your grace and your mercy and your plan for their lives because your desire is that all of us would come to repentance and life that we find in Jesus. Father, whatever the need is, I pray that they would make those steps today that they need to make. In Jesus' name, amen.